Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Hi, you guys. Anna David here. Welcome to the show. This is a re-release of an extremely popular episode. Um, and back when I recorded it, the show focused entirely on addiction and recovery, had a totally different name. And and frankly, this is actually the most popular episode of all time, which is interesting because I've had more better known guests. I've had Mark Marin and Jemima Kirk and Moby, but this woman is so smart and so interesting that that's why I think it just took off. Her name is Sarah Heppala. She's the author of Blackout, Remembering the Things I Drank to Forget. It is an epic book, which you should go by now if you have not read it. And we get into it. We talk about whether it's normal to cry every day. Uh, we differ on that topic. Um, if you should put that you're sober on a dating profile, et cetera, et cetera, please enjoy this interview with the one and only Sarah Heppala. About like, are you okay talking about 12 step, but we already, we already talked about that, you know, so, but okay. So, so what you were saying was that, was that the sort of women and drinking is, is something people you think are interested in right now. And and there's growing awareness about it. I think they're hungry to talk about women's relationship with alcohol, even not even in an addiction like uh, context, but Mm -hmm. just like women that don't necessarily identify as alcoholics. I think are asking themselves, why do I need this? Why do I need this when I go out with my female friends? Right. Why do I need this when I go on a date? I mean, every young female I know drinks before she goes on a date. Well, see, yes, I find that to be, but but I don't know if you had this, but when you quit and you suddenly realize that not everyone's like rushing to the bar to Mm -hmm. do shots or whatever, that Mm -hmm. there are all these people who either don't drink or Mm -hmm barely drink yeah it's definitely part of the sobriety process is to learn that oh I thought everyone drank and they don't yeah and some people live a fairly healthy life with very little alcohol in it and they don't even really notice it so strange it's so 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 very strange to me because I can't think of like what going to college applying to college like if that hadn't been such a priority for me, I can't imagine actually looking at college as something like, oh, where would I want to go to most learn? I mean, I picked my school. It was on, it had it had been on Playboy's top 10 party schools, <laughs> yeah. and it, yet it was a good school. Yeah. Well, I went to a, a state school, and um, I knew that there would be drinking there. I mean, I, I remember writing something. Um, I, I wrote like a fictional account of a young woman in college once. This was mm-hmm. in my 20s. And I remember hearing from somebody in the publishing industry and she said, you write way too much about like drinking and boys. And I was like, <laughs> oh, that was actually my first clue that my entire college experience had been a little out of whack. Really? Yeah, I didn't know. I yeah. thought everybody just basically college experience was just drinking. Yeah. And um, who you liked and what guy was going to like you back. Did and and on the in the on the side, I took some philosophy classes, right. and those were interesting. Right. Like I don't want to minimize that I was a, an intellectually curious person. Right. But the but the majority of my intellectual wandering and and the, it was happening with guys at parties. Right. Right. That was where the action was happening in classes. I was mostly like hung not over. paying attention and hungover. Yeah. And trying to not. T- I mean, I never spoke in class. Like, right. I was very much a wallflower. I didn't participate. Yeah, I I had such a similar experience where, and all my friends were pretty much like that as well. And 
And I remember, I remember one lecture, one time I saw a sign that said Edward Albee was coming to Trinity. He was the one like famous alum we ever had. Yeah. And I said, God, I want to go to that. And that was as close, I never went. That was as close <laughs> as I ever came to actually kind of being curious about something and making an effort to do something intellectual of sorts. I mean, I can remember doing things like I went to the Huntington Gallery for the opening and looked at Tom Stoppard's, um, you know, original draft of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. But the reason I went was because there was an open bar. Right, right. I mean, the extent to which my intellectual journey and my interest in alcohol were entwined, I really can't overstate. They all just happened at once. Right. And um, you didn't major in English? You ma- I did major in English. Okay. I majored in English and liberal arts. Right, right. Where did you go? I don't I went know. to the University of Texas. Okay. And I did, um, there was like this major called Plan 2, which was like a liberal arts honors major, which was a kind of an elite program within the larger university, which was very appealing to somebody like me that wanted the caretaking and, and you know, uh, intimacy of 16-person classes. Mm-hmm. You know, but... Uh, that but you I would not pay attention in. Yeah, um, I mean, anytime, I, I'll tell you what, anytime I went to one of the lecture hall classes, I got a C in them or I skipped them. Right. I needed 16-person classes because I needed the accountability right. of, of going to them. I mean, I was interested in college. I really was interested in what we were talking about. I just was, um, I didn't talk much, you know. Uh, at least that's how I remember myself in those mm-hmm. classes, um, that I was very reluctant to engage because I had a very self-critical brain. Mm-hmm. I had the classic overthinking problem. I had the classic female problem of not wanting to call attention to myself for fear of being mocked mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or looking inferior, mm-hmm. you know. I really looked up to a lot of my male um, classmates who seemed to kind of just have a god-given right to like authority like they just they had so much authority about subjects and they spoke in a way that you listened to them Mm -hmm. and I wanted to be like them and the only the times when I felt like them was when I was drinking Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so then when I was drinking I could have really engaged conversations of the kind that you would think you'd be having in a college classroom right you know that the the engaged debate so you would do that drunk at parties absolutely those were my parties absolutely literature yes Interesting. So you weren't at fraternity parties. I was not. Interesting. I was very skeptical of fraternities. I came from a a high school that um, most of the girls went into sororities. So I really defined myself against that type. I hadn't belonged much at that high school. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw fraternities and sororities as kind of, uh, I mean, I guess I just had a kind of snobbery against them. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, if I'd gone to one of these schools where you had to go to fraternity parties in order to get alcohol, I probably would have revised my view of them. Right. But I didn't. I went to the University of Texas where every every hierarchy got access to a keg party. Mm-hmm. You know, n- nobody, you know, you didn't have to go Greek in order to... Um, you know, in order to, to have crazy parties. And so I belong to this little group of like drama nerds that put on shows every mm-hmm. year mm-hmm. and we drank Keystone light and, uh, bourbon and we went crazy at our party. I mean, you know, we had a great time and yes, the, the way that I remember college was these, um, searching intellectual conversations that would take place from dusk till dawn, you mm-hmm. know, during which we'd just be getting drunker and drunker. Um, and it was so exciting for me. Um, but I could never access that kind of engagement when I was sober. I was much more, um, I was much more shy, but as I grew older, that drinking persona began to dominate my public persona, which Mm -hmm. I know is something that happened with you too. You know, we're like, I didn't know who I was anymore. I was Mm -hmm. just this person that I was when I drank, where I was, um, you know, and, and it's funny because, um, I wouldn't have called myself a party girl because I didn't dress in the way that party hmm. girls mm-hmm. I think of as dressing. I mean, I really dressed like a boy a lot. 
Right, right. As did I, actually. What was the 90s? Yeah, I mean, we wanted, like, it was like flannel shirts. Yeah, we dressed like lumberjacks. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's funny about that. Like, I never, I, my, part of my thing about, about pre-sobriety is that I didn't notice anything. So it's like, I didn't notice the big things and I didn't notice the little things. And I remember sort of being out of college and sort of dressed how I was dressed and, and someone being like, it's so hilarious that you're like wearing that. And I, and, or, and then I was wearing Keds and I remember, like, you're wearing Keds. And I I was like, there's nothing I picked up on, not trends, not music. I, I don't know that it's very extreme. I'm still, you know, I'm sober a long time and I'm still like, you use cold water wash on, on colors. Like, yeah. like just, there's so much. I'm still, still figuring that one out too. <laughs> I mean, there's just, I, I missed it all, but, but it, I also wasn't, I never got drunk and engaged in like high spirited intellectual conversations. Like whatever we were talking about was, I mean, I swallowed goldfish at keg parties. Do you know what I mean? Like I was not, I was not. Did you take that. shots out of people's belly buttons? I think that that predated my age. Like oh. I don't think we were doing that. We were doing jello shots, mm -hmm. but no, like uh, the, the using people's body parts for administering <laughs> chemicals totally came afterwards. Like we never, nobody did coke off boobs. Like right. that did not. That was really like the girls gone wild era yes, of the yes. late nineties, yes. I think. And, and it predated me too. Um, it wasn't until, um, I'm not predated. I predated yeah, yeah. that. Yes. Yes. Um, mine was a more innocent time mm -hmm. when we took shots out of, out of containers. Yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> and you didn't do the drugs really. I never did drugs. Not it's such once. a square. I think this is an interesting part of my story. Okay. Yeah. Because, um, I always understood people out of control as being like, they would they would just do all the drugs and uh, I was scared of drugs. Mm -hmm. um, I really thought of myself as a good girl and by good girl, I meant that I only did, I mean, alcohol was my right. drug. It's my drug of choice. Right. Um, and th at the time, I, um, well, I do think there was some old fashioned fear factor going on mm -hmm. that um, I really had been, um, you know, uh, the, the, the warp in my brain of the war on drugs. Like I really did believe that cocaine could kill you. Mm -hmm. Like I remember the first time I found out that a friend of mine was doing cocaine and mm -hmm. I was like, should we have an intervention? Right. You know, like I had no, how old were you? Um, I think I was in my late twenties. Like I actually, oh no, God. I'm not kidding you. This oh is not God. under, yeah. like I'm not playing this up for comedy. This is like actually how sheltered from drugs I was. And I think it also tells you something about Austin in the 90s. Now, my college friends were definitely doing ecstasy. Yeah. And they were definitely doing acid. And I was scared of both of them. Acid because people who had... Uh, vivid imaginations often described having incredibly bad trips. Mm -hmm. And I had fought my childhood with a very morbid imagination and mm -hmm. was often imagining my own death and other people's death. Mm. So the idea of a drug that would enable that right. scared the hell out of me. Yeah. So I couldn't take that. I'd also gotten stoned once, super, super stoned. Right. And I started hallucinating. Yeah. And it was the worst thing. It, it, Did you only smoke pot once then? I, I smoked it a handful of times. I kept tr going back to yeah. it being like, I'm going to figure this out. Yeah, it's yeah. going to get better. And every time it was horrible. Yeah. And something bad would happen. And I was like, this is not my drug at all. Yeah. And yeah. I've been told that like alcohol is the drug for people that want to slow, you know, speed up. And pot is a drug for people that want to slow down. That's interesting. I never wanted to slow down. I always wanted yeah. to speed up. So yeah. I would have been interested in the speed up drugs. So Coke would have been my drug. Yeah. But I was scared of it. Right. Because Len Bias died. I remember the very first time I ever did Coke, junior high school prom, I was like snorting the line and someone goes, Len Bias died. It the was first terrifying. Time I, Coke. I know. I didn't even know who Len Bias was because I still barely, I mean like an athlete. Like, I don't, so I don't follow sports at all, but, but I remember it was yes. on the cover of Time Magazine. It was a big, was deal. A big deal. Well, and, and it's also, most people don't die from cocaine. People die from opiates and right. alcohol. People die from alcohol all the time. Yeah. yeah. And yet I had this false dichotomy, which yeah. I think is very common for my age group. Right. Um, which is the grunge era where like we just binge drinking was a totally okay thing. Mm -hmm. And all these other, these hard drugs, first of all, nobody in my group would have done heroin. Mm -hmm. Nobody in my group would have done heroin. Mm -hmm. No fucking what can I cuss yeah of course okay please. no fucking way right when I like that is something that's totally generational because now I talk to 25 year olds and they have a very casual relationship to heroin somewhat like your relationship with coke yeah well and also I think they do because of opiates because they've grown up because like, they've grown up yeah with opiates painkillers yeah yeah with painkillers so so anyway 
all of these things are generally generationally informed, but I was definitely on the square end of the spectrum. Um, I also think what was going on, frankly, was that I never needed anything else. Right. I have, have compared it to like alcohol was like, was like marrying your high school sweetheart for me. Like I never needed anything else. I was just like, this is my deal. Like it, to me, alcohol was so versatile. It was an upper, it was a downer, it was a flatliner. Like it was, like it was, it was good when I was bored. It was good when I was ramped up. It was good when I needed to be ramped up. I mean, how one drug does all those things. Hmm. It, but it was, to me, it was an incredibly masterful, masterful, versatile drug. What about depression? Yeah, I know. Thank you for asking me about that. But I mean, so so how tied together were those for you? Yeah, and and it's interesting because there was a section in my book that addressed that a little bit more carefully and I ended up taking it out because there were just only so many things I could explore. But you know, I think here's the deal. I'm like a lot of writers and like a lot of drinkers. I'm kind of predisposed to the melancholy. Mm -hmm. And when I was about 13, my mom can tell you that like they thought really hard about, well, she needs maybe therapy. She needs maybe a, it was a little early for antidepressants, but if I'd grown up in another generation, I definitely think they would have put me on them. Yeah. Um, And so alcohol really appeals to that personality type Mm -hmm. because it lifts the blue, Mm -hmm. but it also exacerbates the depression of that personality type Mm -hmm. because it amplifies the blue on, you know, Saturdays and Sundays and whenever, you know. And um, so what was happening to me was that in my 20s, when I really was abusing alcohol, but I was maintaining, I was always manifesting as having being depressed, right? Mm -hmm. So I'd go into the therapist and they'd be like, well, maybe you should quit drinking. And I'd be like, no, I'm not going to do that. So you were honest with them about how much you drank? Yeah, I was always honest. You know, my mom's a therapist. Mm -hmm. And so I've always been like, if I'm going to spend money on this, I'm going to cough it up and Mm -hmm. tell them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I would tell them, um, you know, and then, um, they'd be like, well, maybe you should quit drinking. And I'd be like, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. And they'd be like, okay, well, so we'll put you on antidepressants and see how it does, but you need to cut the drinking down. Right. Cause they don't work. And I'd be like, drinking. okay, that's fine. And then I wouldn't do it. Yeah. So I would, then I would start lying to them. Yeah. 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 You know, so, and, and I remember one of them telling me if you take antidepressants and you drink, it's like taking your antidepressants and flushing them down a toilet. Right. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. That's an interesting theory. <laughs> I'm going to try my theory, right. <laughs> which is I'm going to do them anyway. Yeah. <laughs> that's so, I so get that. I, um, yeah, I, I remember realizing, you know, when I got put on antidepressants and they said, don't drink, realizing that there would be no bad interactions. So I was like, well, oh, no, why there's, wouldn't I? Well, why not try it, right? right. <laughs> like, let right. me try my way, which is I get to drink all I want and take this pill. And then I think there's always the genuine hope that as you take the pill and the pill helps you, you will not be drinking as much. Did you have that hope? I mean, I never I thought about it like that. I did. I did. I, I was, because, um, and I don't know, maybe that's a defense mechanism that's like me feeling again like the good girl, like I'm following directions. Right. It's just that I would try it for a week. Okay, now that I'm on this pill, I'm not going to drink so much. I'm going to limit myself to these seven glass. By the way, they would always tell me seven drinks a week. And I'd be like, nobody can do that. Right. I can't do seven drinks in a night. Right. I couldn't. Right. But I would tell them like, oh, that's no problem. That seems really reasonable. And, um, and I would do it for a week and then I would blow past it. And mm. I couldn't do it. And I'd stop counting my drinks. A lot of my defense was not counting because mm-hmm. if I didn't count, then I wasn't accountable. Right. 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 Um, but it would just slowly go to the, move to the back burner. I was always trying to be well behaved though. I mean, I think this is like, I really was always trying to be telling people the truth. I was always trying to be on top of it, but I would, I had the best of intentions, but they would just sort of fade to the background after a while. Yeah. Yeah. What what happened to me at one point in my, in my mid thirties near the end of my drinking career is that I got on antidepressants, um, and they actually made me hypomanic. Mm. Have you ever gone hypomanic or do you know anything about that? I had one night of mania and it was, and I don't think it was mania because I went to sleep, but I, I, but I felt that feeling that people talked about and it scared me and it was was absolutely insane. I didn't understand why I couldn't sleep anymore. Right. So it was an extended period of time. It was an extended period of time. And can I ask what you were on? I wish I remembered. Was it, um, it was an SSRI. Yeah, it was an SSRI. And, um, 
it was like probably Lexapro, but right. Um, cause that's the one that I found the, had the least, like it didn't have sexual side effects, I right. think. Oh, it know? doesn't. Yeah. And, um, they put me on Wellbutrin cause you're supposed to be able to lose weight. And then I went completely insane cause it, Wellbutrin did nothing for me. Did it actually do things? It made for me you? insane. It made, it made me an insane. insane person. Like I remember I missed the subway and I was like, fucking subway. Like right. I burst into tears right. and I was like, something's wrong. Right. So I was on this other thing and I'm pretty sure it was Lexapro. Um, and I went hypomanic after a certain amount of time. And I was also, this also coincides with my heaviest drinking period. Mm -hmm. I was drinking a lot, a lot, a lot, like Mm -hmm. all the time. And I was starting to stay up all night. So I was trying to drink to get myself down. Mm -hmm. And it was just, I was spiraling into this craziness. And I remember walking down the street in New York and seeing this truck and being like, I think I could stop that truck with my hands. Like I actually thought that. Yeah. And, um, and then I called my therapist and, and I was like, I think something's wrong with me. And the way that I was talking, she was like, um, I think that you're hypomanic, you know, because I was talking fast and I didn't even know it. Right. And so that's when she was like, I think we need to titrate you down off those meds. You need to call your psychiatrist. But like a good little, like I was such an idiot, like like a not good little girl. You were I, like, I'll just go off. Yeah, I just threw them. I just tossed yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, Because I was like, fuck this. This is horrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then this horrible spiraling out of control withdrawal happened. And from, Oh, from Lexapro. Yeah, From yeah. Lexapro. And I was like, the it was, I can't even, still can't even describe it. It was like this weird fever where the only thing that would relieve it was alcohol. Uh-huh. And was it like that brain? I was on a fixer and it, the withdrawal, if I forgot a day, I was like dope sick, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, that's what it's, um, I remember talking to a guy who'd been on heroin and I saw him that night and I was like, I don't, I was like, I don't know what's going on with me, but if I don't have alcohol every three hours, I get really cold and I start to shake and I get nauseated. And he was Mm -hmm. like, yeah, that happened to me with heroin. Yeah. He's like, just, it's going to last for about two days. And he was exactly right. He talked me through it, but he was basically talking me through my and now that you say, maybe I was on Effexor. I was on both Effexor oh, and Lexapro. That one, I, I was on it for years and years. And I, I, like the last year I was taking it, I kept forgetting. And I would feel like the train spotting scene with the baby on the ceiling. Like I would just lie there and be like, oh my God, I'm de- like detox is just the worst. And you got the brain twitches, right? The brain twitches, nausea, um, unable to do anything but be in bed and be and moan so I was out of like I had to work from home for two weeks after this like it was a total freaking meltdown yeah and after that I was like oh my god I don't know what's happened but I just had some kind of crazy chemical meltdown and I need to quit drinking and I need to quit antidepressants right and um and so this is when I tried to stop drinking more in earnest Mm -hmm. um and it just didn't work. I was in relapse land for about two years. How long would you stop for? Like a week and two weeks. Mm-hmm. And then what was going on was I would stop. I would start again. I remember I went on a date. Never go on a date when you're trying to quit drinking. <laughs> yeah, no. Never, never, no. never, never. Yeah. And I showed up. But it's the time you most want to. And I was like, yeah, yeah, because you want to do something. Yeah, uh, any distraction. Any distraction. And I showed up and he had a beer in front of him. And I had given myself a talk the whole way there being like, you can do this, you can do this. And the second I sat down, I was like, I'm not going to do this. Yeah. I know I'm going to drink. And I drank and I got wasted and I slept with him that night. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just everything everything that I had told myself I wasn't going to do. Right. And then I was in this strange place of like, I don't really know if I like him, but I slept with him. And yeah. And now I, I, I mean, I guess I'll see him again. And, and then, I should like him because I slept with him. And I should like him because he's also a nice guy. Right. But I don't, but I, you know, and then yeah, your, your, your like body has leaped ahead. Yeah. And your mind is still kind of like, who's that guy again? Right. Right. And so we went on a second date and then I'd, drank and slept with him the last time. So I felt like I had to do it again. Yeah, you know, I like mean. you can't walk it back. No. You know, so it's, and then I found, and, and I kept doing things like that where every two weeks there would be some excuse of like, well, I need to drink for this reason. So I'm just going to drink tonight. And what started happening was I was drinking every two weeks, mm-hmm. which was kind of like not a bad moderation management plan. Right. Right. And I was like, this isn't bad. Maybe I'll just drink every two weeks. But the, 
shame and the self-hatred and all this stuff were a nightmare. Finally, I stopped trying to do that and I just started drinking again. Yeah. Um, and then that's when I, like in the, in the book, I tell the story of like moving into this place in Manhattan and getting this apartment by myself. And, you know, I just, I decided I was just going to be a drinker and I was just, you know, um, and then finally, uh, I quit when I was 35. But the part that I want point out here is that once I finally quit and I was about a year sober, I think that's when I realized that I was not a depressed person. Really? That I was an anxious person. Right. I was a highly, highly anxious person. But without the alcohol in my system, I did not struggle nearly so much with a daily or weekly depression. Mm -hmm. However, that said, five years into my sobriety, I still see that specter of depression sometimes when I'm struggling and I cry, I cry a lot. I cry much more than most people. How often? I mean, I would say at least daily, if not, oh yeah. I mean, what kind of crying? So, so like you're moved by a sad story crying or it's always about my life. It's always, yeah. I don't know. I am not, you know what? It's so funny. Um, you know how people always talk about, they cry at commercials. Yeah. Yeah. I've never cried at a commercial. Okay. I only have when it's something that, that relates to my life and I'm imagining my life. Like, okay, like I, the most painful part of your book to me was the cat stuff because, oh. because of my obsession with my cat and because yeah. every time I pet her, I'm like, she's going to be gone one day. It's like, so talk hard. about when you were talking about like, fear, like thinking about death. Like that's, it's such an immediate association. And so like I cried at that part of your book. Because it's about you and your cat. Yes. But I think Nothing that's to do with you and your but cat. But I think that's why everybody cries. I yes. think when people cry at commercials, they cry because it's some kind of sideways grief that they yes. haven't acknowledged. Yes. And that that moment has hit a kind of hot spot in them. Yes. And a lot of times they don't know it. They don't really know the mechanism, the Rube Goldberg machine inside them. Right. That's made this, like this little, you know, yeah. Finger flicked, turn into this, you know, this on the other side. Um, but, but, okay, I'm but sorry. But to I, me, it's a much more direct hit. It's just about things that are happening I literally to you. only cry about myself. But like, okay. And by the way, I used to, I still cry about my cat. Um, my sometimes I, um, he's been gone for over a year and I miss him so much yeah. and it's so intense. Yeah. And I've never let, I'm going to cry right now talking yeah, about it. Know, and you can cry about your cat because your cat's going to cry this. one. I mean, your okay, cat, don't, 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 don't. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to go there. Um, no, you can if you need but, to. But no, 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 no. I will see c- people celebrating their cat on Facebook yeah and I will start to cry because my cat's gone yeah and um or I'll be crying because something in my life didn't work out the way that I wanted it to or because somebody didn't love me the way that I wanted them to that is almost exclusively the reasons that I cry and I would say it happens daily now there will be valleys yeah. Valley, valleys of no tears. Right, right, right. Did you, so like, what'd you cry about yesterday? Did you cry? I mean, you're here in, like, on vacation in LA. Is there a lesson reason to cry? What did I cry about yesterday? Um, what did I cry about yesterday? You did. You're pretty sure you did. Well, I, I'm sure I did. No, I know I did. Um, you know, I cried, um, yesterday. Well, I cried in part because, well, and this is something, you know, and, a lot of this stuff, this is really personal stuff, you know? Okay, are you okay with... Well, I'll just tell you this. Um, um, I, I cried yesterday because I've been working on a story, um, which is for Texas Monthly, which is about alcohol and consent, and I feel really, really like I can't do it and really scared. And, um, and I just got really frustrated with myself and I had sort of tears of frustration. Mm-hmm. Um, but that tears of frustration are kind of on the very low end of crying. It's very much like, uh, I think I've, I'm just sort of bored or exhausted or something. You're just getting it out. You're just getting it out. Like, yeah. you know, there's less of an emotional, uh, you know, connection when yeah. you say you're just like, there's going to be no hangover. There's not. No, 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 no. And I, and I think that the, um, no, the deeper tears, they're more about... Yeah, they're more about like, I didn't get what I wanted in my life mm-hmm. um, or somebody didn't love me the way that I want them to mm-hmm. or um, I think those might be the two main ones. Right. Now, do you feel, how connected do you think fear and depression are? Like how much is depression some, you know, scenario in your brain you do not realize is a scenario you're projecting into the future yeah. and, and you're just, you're having a reaction like it's happening at that moment? You know, um, I, I, I think that 
Well, are you talking about like the tendency for us to be catastrophizing our lives? Well, that and and I think that on alcoholism, people, humanism, whatever, but that like I don't have this thing and so that means I will never have this thing and it's as if you've gotten to the end of your life and you have confirmation you've never you'll never have this thing. You know, isn't that what fear is? Yeah, and and I do that um Well, see, a lot of my stuff, I don't know you know, when I'm crying about what I didn't get, um, I don't know what part of that is entitlement, is like my right. ego and entitlement. Um, and I have like really wild swings of ego where I think I deserve things that I don't really deserve. Right. And I don't think that should be classified as depression. I think that should be classified as my, you know, <laughs> getting more real about immaturity. My, my immaturity yeah. and my entitlement. Yeah. Which I think are real character defects, to use the terms of the program, yeah. that I have and that I struggle with. Yeah, I I had this, you know, um, you know, and 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 I like about books. Like I was just like, my book should have done better. Which I really want to ask you about how that connects to happiness. But but and and then I was like, and I'm like, you know, maybe you know, and I felt entitled, and I'm like, maybe I've gotten way more than I'm entitled to. Yeah. Like, what if I never deserved to even get the deals? And I'm sitting here weeping over the fact that they didn't do better. Like, what if I've gotten more than I, and then I tell myself That's I'm entitled to, yeah. you know? But, so, now, and I remember when I was trying to sell my first book, I was like, is if I sell this book, I will be happy for the rest of my life. Oh my gosh, I remember thinking that too. Yeah. And I was just like, and then it happened and I was so happy and I was like, this will last the rest of my life and maybe a week passed and I... And it was gone. But then what about the, if this book does well, I'll be happy for the rest of my life. Yeah. And so, I mean, anyone listening surely knows that like this, your book has done phenomenally well. Uh, you know, New York Times bestseller. I just saw on Amazon today, number one for addiction and recovery. That's great. You know this? No, I don't. I've banned myself from my Amazon page. Oh, you because, have. Because um, I will get my feelings hurt. Yeah, by, okay. Um, There's like 290 reviews. I know. Something. And I'm not, I've banned myself ever since I, I went on there one day oh. and I saw someone say, don't bother, was that the headline yeah. of it? And, um, and it completely cratered my day. Mm. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to ever go to the Amazon page again. And I actually have held myself to yeah, it. Yeah, that's really smart. I don't do it. And I have a very sweet, dear friend who has a touch of the OCD. Mm. And he is always giving me updates on mm-hmm. my Amazon page. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, you're number X and Y, you mm-hmm. know. And so I do hear things about my Amazon page. Um, like I know the number of reviews and stuff. But I don't actually go to the mm-hmm. site it's myself. Such self-restraint. I know. It's... Self-restraint and, self-protection. and it's self-protection. Yeah. Um, because um, this is so interesting that you're talking about what will happen if you get success. Because um, you talked about, uh, you thought, I, I really thought that if I sold the book, I would just be, ha- that's all I wanted. Yeah. And then I realized that's not all I wanted. Yeah. Um, I wanted the book to do well. Yeah. And then I thought if the book just does well, I'll be happy. Yeah. And then the book did well. Yeah. Now what? And then I realized that didn't make me happy either, right. which was really hard. I, and I believe that. And it's actually something I never talk about. Well, because it, it sounds because obnoxious, but it's I not. I think I'm not allowed to talk about and it. You, and that I so get, well, my brother just sold a company. He was part of a company that sold for $2.2 billion. And it's like, I've watched it not make him happy. Yeah. Like there's just nothing. And, um, and actually when you were talking earlier about things that I cry about. And, um, one of the things that I've cried a lot about is how lonely I feel. Yeah. And I have think that part of that is because I don't talk about any of this stuff. Right. And I don't really, um, I've felt very estranged from my friends and, um, I spent a lot of the summer, uh, in an anxious posture, very afraid that I was going to screw this up. What do you, how? I was going to say the wrong thing. Right. 
Like just in this Texas monthly piece, I'm doing about alcohol right. and consent, which is a really taboo issue. And I'm, t- and I want to talk about it. I think it's really interesting. I think I have important things to say and I'm terrified that I'm going to say it the wrong way and then it's going to explode. And the thing that I worked for so hard is going to, is going to explode in my face. You know, when I was talking earlier about how I'm really entitled and, you know, I think I deserve all these things. Well, that's one part of me. And then the other part of me is cripplingly insecure right. and so scared all the time. Right. And I don't have proper confidence in myself. And I don't have the sense of like, you know what, if people are talking about this Texas monthly story that I write, it's probably because it's an interesting topic. And it's not about me. And it's not um, because I've screwed up, quote unquote, right? It's because I've, I've, I've touched on a subject that matters to people like, like, that's like the more mature part of my brain. Um, and then the kind of crouched in fear childlike part of my brain is like, I'm going to fuck it up. I'm going to fuck it up. I'm going to fuck this up. Right. Right. Which is, by the way, the, the crazy world we live in right now where, where you can be yeah. crucified. Yeah. I'm, I mean, Twitter scares the hell out of me. I mean, it should scare all of us. I just read this amazing book, uh, John Ronson. So you've I been loved publicly that book. shamed. I loved that book. Yeah. And, and I read it in the months before my book came out, right. which I think is like reading Carrie before you go to prom. Like it's so Seriously. freaking scary. It's just like, this is the worst thing that could happen to you when your book comes out. Yeah. Like it hurt. Like reading those sections. The Justine Sacco one. Oh my God. And the Joan Allaire in a I have to way. say the Joan Allaire thing because I am a memoirist who lives in fear of what I've gotten wrong. Do you worry about this? Yes and no. I yeah, I have other issues. I mean, no. No. You don't. Okay, good. I mean, I'm and I shouldn't even say that out loud, no. but it's like but it's like I feel like I wouldn't be honest if I didn't like I I do things like I show people pages, is this what it looked like to you? Mm. Like I I go back into my notes like is that what happened, you know, but like there's there I'm waiting to be shown that I got it wrong. You know, I'm waiting for someone to call me up and tell me that I got the Bob, I made up the Bob Dylan quotes, you know, and and I'll, I'll, by the way, I'm like a paranoid person, right? you know? And like, I always thought I was going to be fired at my job and I always got promoted. Like, I mean, so this is partly my like mental makeup is that I, I am looking for the, um, the like, uh, the guy that's going to lunge out of the bushes, you know, yeah. like all the time. Does that, does that get better as you, as the longer you're sober? Uh, because I feel like less like a fraud. I think, you know, um, you know, Jonah there, you know, in a way that story is about somebody who was a fraud. By the way, I don't think he did much wrong. That's just a side note. Like I, I mean, quotes, Change plagiarize yourself. Everybody's oh well. The plagiarizing yourself thing is not a big deal at all. But but the the making up the Bob Dylan quotes is sloppy, and he should have fact checked. Like somebody like he was in a like I think it's sloppy journalism, and I don't and I don't think he should have lost his career. A life destroying mistake. Yeah, I mean that's madness. But so yeah, I bet it's hard for you to say if this if this has gotten better, given that this is you're in the midst of the thing that if you had this fear, it would just be multiplied times a million. Because but like now that it hasn't happened, that no one's come out and said in oh. terms of your book has it has that diminished yeah I mean you know now that so many people have read it you know it's so funny I'm so paranoid that some part of me was like my friends are gonna be like Sarah you weren't that bad of a drinker mm. and my friends were all like oh yeah you were really bad right and in fact like here's here's five worse. stories yeah. we didn't tell you about such a relief yeah yeah such a re- mixed relief right yeah um but uh does it get better? Well, no. In fact, now, you know, I'm going to drive away from this interview and I'm going to be like, I can't believe I put that into the air uh, because I I gave it voice, Anna. Like, no, but like I said Bloody Mary three times in front of the mirror. But no, but that isn't that like sharing in a meeting? That's how you release it? Yeah. You know? and, and by the way, there's no one who's ever finished this podcast and hasn't said to me, oh my God, that was terrible. Or, oh my God, I shouldn't have said that. And there has never been an unsuccessful episode. Okay. So, so... Yeah, I mean, this is interesting. I was actually sharing about this in a meeting this morning. That voice that says that, Mm -hmm. the major change in long-term sobriety for me is that the voice that comes up and is like, oh, that's a lie, or you needed to do that, is so much faster than it used Mm -hmm. to be. 
Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like you get the voice and then you get that voice that's like, oh, that's bullshit. Well, yeah. Do you I, have you, that? You know, well, what I, what I remember, okay, so I remember when the book was coming out and I was like crying to my therapist because I was like, what if somebody catches me, you know, and, I'm, and, I, and I don't know what I'm talking about. And she's like, I have a really good fix for that. Don't talk about things you don't know anything right. about. And right. when you don't know what they're about, just say, I don't know what the answer right. to this. Right. And I was like, like, that was the biggest light bulb for me. Right. And I was like, oh my God, she's totally right. Like, if you don't want to be revealed as a fraud, just tell the truth. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. Oh my God. But because so much of my, um, especially intellectually, because I, I, I was a kid that didn't read books in high school and I was like, you know, I, I didn't do the work and I was always faking it. Mm-hmm. And so it was really customary for me to be like, let me pretend to know the artist that you just mentioned that I should know who it is. Right. Oh no, of course I know who that is, you right. know, but I didn't really know it. So I've learned in sobriety to say, I don't know that person. Yeah. And then you might judge me and be like, how could you not know who that person is? But then I don't have to worry that I'm going to be revealed to be a fraud. Yeah. So the more that I just remain myself and I just tell the truth about my life, then it's okay. Right. Like there's this part in David Carr's memoir where he's writing a note to himself about how to write a, a good memoir. And he says something like, tell the truth and no harm can come to you. Right. You know, and, and, and I remind myself of that. You know, just don't, like, don't pretend. And then you don't have to worry that people will catch you pretending, which I feel like is what Jonah Lair was doing. You know, he was pretending. Yeah. And people caught him pretending. Yeah, but since it's not a conscious thing, it's really, really hard. I mean... Well, also, a lot of people are pretending. Yeah. Like, it's a, it's a it's a common sin. And it's like, it's like a part of our culture is, yeah. you know... But, you know, and, and this is something that, that recovery has been so interesting to me because our culture is like, you know, uh, be an expert, will yourself into this and, you know, and, and get this by stomping on people and to learn that, oh my God, I had it totally backwards. Like if I want happiness, I got to not think about myself so much. I got to surrender. That's to exactly right. You know, that's exactly right. Um, and, and I think one of the, to, to go back to what we were talking about, the success of the book, like, I'm so, I'm so happy for the success of the, no, I'm so like, like, it's incredibly gratifying yeah. that, that people want to talk about the book. I enjoy it. I actually really genuinely enjoy engaged conversations about the book's themes and, and the, the things that come up. I like going to events, um, but none of it made me happy in a way of like, I sit back at the beach and I'm like, look at what I did. Right. This feels good. I'm still me. And I'm still carrying around my me problems. You know, that I don't like this part about my body or I don't like this thing about my behavior or I don't this or that or the other thing. And I do think that one of the things I'm starting to finally get at the age of 41 is that if I want to be happy, my happiness can't be totally in the bucket of how successful I am. Mm -hmm. Because also the success is going to go away. You, you say I mean, maybe I it won't wonder, like, look maybe like Barry Diller's always been successful like I'm like there are yeah. Scott uh you know whatever maybe, maybe it won't but um but I'll it's tell never you the attention's gonna, gonna go away but um but this but the success isn't doing it anyway yeah and then the times when I feel happy or when I'm talking to somebody else about their life yeah when somebody comes up to me and talks to me about their life and uh their story or when uh, somebody's telling me about how the book brought up something for them, like then I feel useful. Mm-hmm. Then I feel like, oh, good. There's some. I did something that had val, like it had meaning to people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the more I stay into where I am on Amazon, yeah, that's a that's a fucking ga- losing game. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Did you? But, but okay, so when did you realize that it was going to be successful? I mean, like, what was the thing, you know, the book, you know, comes out, you spent... Well, so I think there was a bunch of media attention, but I thought maybe that was just because I knew a bunch of people. Right. And so I, I kind of blew it off. Like, like I don't want to say blew it off like I took it for granted, but I didn't think it was a metric of the book doing well. And it's not always. Because I had all these friends from working in the media for 15 years and from working with a lot of freelancers, working with, you know, as a personal essays editor, I had relationships with all these different freelancers yeah. who wanted 
to interview me and yeah. then place the interview in a in a magazine. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's good for them. It's good for me. That's great. That's mutually beneficial. I understood that there was interest in the topic. But see, I didn't realize it was going to be a success. Now, now keep in mind that my publisher and my editor um, had been telling me it's going to be a success, mm-hmm. but I, this is my first book. Yeah. I thought maybe they told everybody that. I think they might. And so I just thought they don't like, like that to me, it was like your mom telling you that you look pretty. You're right. like, well, you have to say that you're my mom. Right. right. And so I didn't really, um, n- know who to turn to. And then my agent who I think does see a lot of these different things was kind of always trying to brace me for it being a a failure. And I mean this in a kind way that, um, I think she was always trying to get me to think about it. Like the successes that you wrote it, the successes that were here, like, because she's seen so many writers crushed when it didn't achieve X, Y, or Z. And so she can't, predict the future right so I really didn't know until that first week and it landed on the bestseller list oh it did in the first week yeah and that was the that was really my first indication I mean that that it was going to be a success that it it was a success right and I think that was the day before that was the New York Times review from Dwight Garner, which mm-hmm. was really positive. Mm-hmm. And so it was the two, those two things at yeah. once that was, they, that was very much the moment of, okay, kid, you've made it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it was an incredible feeling. I mean, I've talked about, oh, I'm lonely and I cry yeah. and Anna, be my friend. Right. But let me tell you, those were good days. Yes, yes. That was incredible. That was incredible. Yeah, yeah. And both can be true. You know, at simultaneously. And I think it's, um, you know, but I feel like that voice then goes, oh, my God, I got to do this again. Right? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, um, you know, what now? I got to live up to or whatever. I'm not I'm putting fears. In well, I think I'm starting to feel that now because I'm starting to They're think going, about. They're going, what's your next book? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm starting to think about the next book and I'm starting to think about the next thing. And it's like. You know, I really went through this thing right around that time where I had been through, I had been in so much anxiety and so much turmoil leading up to that moment that I really started to think I didn't want to write another book Mm -hmm. and that I would be better served um, doing different kind of, a different kind of writing, whether Mm -hmm. it was essay writing, whether it was magazine writing, um, something that was a little bit lower stakes because I think it's a little bit like somebody that has a kid and is just like, Love the kid, never going to go through that again. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then what happens is the memory fades yeah. and you get a little bit further away from it and you start to think like, I could do that again. And I survived it. I survived it. I wasn't, I wasn't so bad. I wasn't so bad. So, um, you know, but I did have this, this thought the other day of like, oh my God, I got to do this whole thing over again. Oh, I don't know if I have it in me. Um, you know, I, I think also because the drinking story was so obviously the book for me, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it, it, we, we talked before, I think before you, you turned this on, we talked a little bit about, you know, I don't have the most dramatic addiction right. and recovery story. There's no question. I have very much a garden variety drinker story. Some, some, uh, bad things happen to me. They are very much in the middle of the spectrum of what happens to somebody in a drinking life. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly many Many, many worse things happen to many people in the course of a drinking um, or any kind of, uh, uh, you know, addiction, um, drug using life. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but however, I knew and loved alcohol unlike anything else in my life. And it was so abundantly clear to me that that was the subject of my first book. Right. Right. It didn't have, it didn't matter that I didn't have the scariest story. Yeah. I had a, I will put my mental obsession up against anyone's. Right, right, <laughs> like, right. I had, I had a love and a mental obsession for that liquid that I will, you know, I will fight you to the death. Right. About it. Right. And so I knew that I could write about it. Yeah. And that it would sustain years of interest, investigation, toil. You know, both examining why I liked it, how I could manage to continue to let go of it and build a life without it. Yeah. So, so un- you know, they talk about write what you know, and there was just no question. Like, right. I knew booze. Yeah. I knew booze more than 
anything else. Do you, uh, was it shocking to you that you were able to let it go? Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Because my identity was so wrapped up in it. And so I just didn't think that I, I thought, I thought, well, I could quit drinking, but it's just going to be this incredibly boring, oh, yeah. colorless life. Oh yeah. And so I didn't, it's not that I thought quitting drinking was impossible so much as I thought life without alcohol being any fun whatsoever was impossible. Yes. And the fact that I can sit in a bar and like the other night people were, I was at a, a Labor Day party and that was last night. And somebody next to me was drinking a Negro Modelo, which I used to love that drink. And I could smell it, you know. Um, and I was drinking my, I was on my seventh glass of San Pellegrino. Oh, you know? so you don't, you don't screw around. You still drink as much. It's just different things. I fucking still drink as much, man. I, I nurse one cranberry soda every night. Do you? That's all. That's yeah. So it turns classy. out I wasn't that thirsty. And you know, it's a good drink with a, a dash actually, of cranberry with lime. I'm just going to say. It's a great it's drink. It's a signature drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's classy. Um, I like it too. Um, and especially when um, you want to be somewhere where it looks like you're having a cocktail. Do you care about that? Um, do I care about that? Every once in a while. Really? Normally, no. But well, every once in a while, I don't want attention. Mm-hmm. I don't want attention. And do you for think not does that call like call attention to you when people? I guess people do. People really go, "What? You're not having a drink." Nobody says that to me anymore. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, now, but, never again. But both of us are publicly sober. Yeah. Everyone knows that we're sober. Yeah, but do you meet people who have no idea? Yeah. You know, um, I just met somebody last week who was just like so confused by, you know, that whole like, what do you mean? And you can't smoke weed? You know, that, yeah. that conversation. Well, like, I think it comes up around dating. And I'm yes. curious how you deal with that. Yeah, I mean, for me, I have such a strange relationship with it. I, you know, the first week I was sober, and I've totally written about this, I went to a bar to meet somebody, and I was like, can I have a Diet Coke? Because, you know, I was this terrible cocaine addict, and I can't drink. <laughs> I just told yeah. everybody. Yeah. And it never occurred to me not to, and yeah. I don't know why. And Maybe so, it felt safer. Did it feel safer doing that? It, it's, it's, I'm still not conscious of why I did it. Yeah. And I don't You're know You're the non-noticer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know if I if I thought it was insurance against not doing it. I think I'm like a chronic oversharer. That, well, I think it, it, it sounds like, to me. like yeah, that, that's okay. my motivation for most things. Yeah, like I'll get attention. Yeah. Um, and you didn't think it was bad attention? I it uh, for me, I'm like an equal opportunity attention <laughs> getter. Like if it's bad attention, doesn't matter. That's it's attention. Great. It's crazy. That's I'm still great. Still like that. Um, but whatever. Good attention. Better I mean, than it's, bad. it's great in the sense of it's funny. It's I. I love human behaviors that. Um, that makes sense. You know, I'm not like that. I. I very much. I had so much invested in being a drinker that being a non-drinker felt very shameful to me. Interesting. So, so when I showed up at a bar and I wasn't drinking, I did not want to call attention to it. And I did not want to let people know because I thought it meant I wasn't cool. And I was very afraid they were going to come to the conclusion that I wasn't cool. Yeah. See, I'm, I've I've been under this per- perception my entire sobriety that it's cooler than drinking. You're right. I, I mean, uh, like I was so desperately uncool when I was a drunk and a coke addict that like immediately I was cooler by not doing it. You're but, absolutely right. But, but I wonder, did you get sober in LA? Yes. Well, there's that and too. And I think LA is such a cool sober community. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. It's really the norm to just yeah. have been a decadent drunk yeah. or drug addict and now not be. Yeah. But so, okay. So in when, it, when you go on a date, well, now it's all blown to hell because everybody knows you're sober. But like before... The but book. they don't. They don't on Tinder. I mean, yeah, people yeah, are yeah. still just like, who are you? What yeah. do you write? But so then like, they go, what, really do you, hard. Hard. So what do you write? So what do you write? I and know. I'm like... Uh, okay. I write, um, I write some first person stories. Well, can I see one? Yeah. And as soon as I give them my first and last name, they know everything about me and I don't want that before I meet them. Yeah. But, um, but I, but so it's been very awkward. I've had a very fitful re-entry onto the dating sites, mm-hmm. um, which I only recently did like a couple weeks ago. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so because fresh. I took myself off for a, a while to focus on the book and I didn't yeah. want the distraction of it. And then I was like, you know what? It's time. Yeah. And so uh, I haven't been able to um, uh, explain like, I mean, I feel like I have to do the download that you used to do in week one of your sobriety, yeah, which yeah. is like, hey, I'm Sarah. I used to be a crazy drinker. I wrote this book about it. Kind of talks about sex stuff. You right. can look it up online. <laughs> you know, like, hey, meet me for coffee. You know, like, 
I don't want to do all that. And so what I end up doing is saying weird things like, I just prefer not to tell you what I write until we meet. And then it sounds like that sounds crazy. It sounds like a crazy person. Yeah, I know. know. There's, you know, there is no way around. I used to do a thing with online dating where I had another email address where it wouldn't say my name, Mm -hmm. you know, because I just don't Google before, you know. Yeah. And then you just sort of and like, you know, I don't know. Once your age is on Wikipedia, you just sort of give up on it all. And I'm just like, fine, this is this is it, you know. So you just let it hang out. You say, I'm Anna David, you know, I'm. Depend. I mean, you know, as soon as they go, well, especially with this like after party thing, it's like, oh, well, what's that? You know, there's no because it's in your email address. Yeah, it's like, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I um, yeah, it's just something that I think there's no use fighting. Yeah. Um, but but it's you know, and if somebody's got a problem with it, good to know up front. It's always good to know up front. I always put sober in my profile because, like, on Tinder. I do. Is that okay. a bad move? No, I don't think so. But that's so interesting that then you would want them to not know that you wrote this like amazing best-selling book. I mean, I get it, sort of. <clears throat> Maybe I'm. What you're saying is that I'm front-loading the less interesting parts of myself, <laughs> and bit. I'm burying yes. the lead. But maybe that's like not wanting attention. You I know, I think that- I have mixed up. Well, I talk about this in my book. I'm very mixed up on attention. You know, where I just have this feeling of like nobody look at me. Why isn't anyone looking at me? Well, I um, hear people, sober people, say that all the time. Oh, I don't relate. I always yeah want because them looking. you, you I do- always. <laughs> It's weird. I wonder because everybody talks about that. Like, you know, that I'm the speaker in the meeting and like, you know, it just feels so weird because I don't want people to like, really? Look, listen. Do we have time to talk about attention? Can we talk about that? Oh, wait, let's talk about okay. attention. Yeah. So um, I'm curious then be, um, because you talk, you know, I know, you, I mean, you're a very pretty woman. And As so are you. thanks. But, but I've gone up and down on the scale like 50 pounds. You As know. have I. By You've the way. been a heavier woman. Uh, yeah, I was 146 at one point. Mm-hmm. My parents sent me to a nutritionist. Um, I well, had how no old idea. Were you? When I was, well, I was going to say this about paranoia, by the way. When I was, I think I was 28. And I remember going to therapy and going, I, th- I fear I've gotten fat and I fear I'm going to get fired. And she was like, well, that's paranoia. And I got fat and I was fired. <laughs> so, so, so what about when, you know, as they say, it's like, it's not paranoia if you're right. If you're right. I know. Um, but, but okay. So, so yeah, go on. Well, I'm just wondering why it is that you experience all attention as good. And I experience it as such a crazy mixed bag of like, come here, go away. Go, no, I want you. Don't, I don't. And and I wonder maybe it's it comes down to essential. Are you a natural extrovert? I wonder about that. I do think the answer is formative years more than anything. It's got to be. Um, you know, I I will say I have a like a weird. I I love how we've made it about me, and it is a perfect meta experience because we're talking about attention. But but I remember being a kid and people saying like, "Oh, you're so shy, like your dad." And I didn't want to be like my dad, and I didn't want to be shy. And then I met a girl when I was ten, Janae Schumacher, Facebook friends, and she was. I remember my mom being like, "She's so gregarious," and I thought. I want to be described that way. And it's like I changed overnight. Wow. So I don't know. But I don't know what that has to do with like the, I don't know. So what do you, do you think that I want attention, I don't want attention is sort of that same thing of, um, you know, I'm entitled, oh, I don't deserve yes. anything. I think they're all tied together. Mm-hmm. And that there's there's some funny pendulum swing that's always going on in my brain. That's like, because um, I, I think it's, I do, it's, I think it starts with, I deserve all the attention. Mm-hmm. And then there's immediate switchback to, oh my God, no, I'm a fool. Everybody else is more interesting than me. I don't deserve attention at all. Why did I ever think I deserved attention? Nobody should look at me. I want to die and disappear. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, so interesting. it's a, it's yeah. a reaction to the roar of entitlement that begins. Right. You know, like, um, like I was at a writer's event recently and I was like, I walked in with this real entitlement of like, I'm better than all these people. Mm-hmm. And then I started realizing they were really cool and really great. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh my God, I'm worse than all these people. I right. can't believe I came in here thinking I was better <laughs> than these people. Now I feel ashamed at how much better I felt. So there, there's a corrective quality to it. And it always, it's a, it's a, it's a backlash. Well, and it's extremism. Like it's extreme. Alcoholism. I mean, I think I more have, you know, I had a therapist who'd say, you know, you're either the shit or the piece of shit. Like I, like I will have that. It doesn't have to do with attention for me, but I will have that about 
about, yeah, thing, you know, like self-perception. Yeah. I don't know. Um, and I also think that I am, uh, I really am torn between my introvert and extrovert selves. My father was extremely shy mm-hmm. and I did not want to be him either. Mm-hmm. However, I just didn't, I didn't fight it hard mm-hmm. enough, you know, like, like alcohol really overrode that part of me mm-hmm. and I was a complete and total extrovert. Mm-hmm. I mean, an exhibitionist, um, very aggressive. Um, I was all of those things. And then when I was sober, I was always the opposite mm-hmm, of them. Mm-hmm. And so it does feel, I always feel a little bit like my mom and dad are always fighting inside of me the mm. same way they did in my childhood. <laughs> like when they so were interesting. always <laughs> fighting wow. in the next yeah. room. And I feel like it's my genetics and they're just like fighting behind locked doors. And, and I do think I'm like 50% my mom who's an extrovert and yeah. very, very natural around uh, people. Yeah. And my father who is congenitally shy yeah. and very skeptical of strangers. Yeah. Um, and so, so th- that's always fighting in me. But what about the idea that, you know, I, I mean, easy for me to be like, I'm almost 15 years sober, blah, blah, blah. But like that you don't really know who you are. And yeah. like as, as sobriety unfolds, I, you start to realize more and more who you are. I think that's hard for people to believe because they would think five years sober, shouldn't you figure out who the hell you are yet? Yeah. But I mean, every time I talk to sober people that have many years like you do, they're like, oh my gosh, you're a baby. Well, you know, yeah, like, and I have no idea. I mean, I remember my sponsor in New York turning 20 years sober and she's like, oh my God, I finally get what they say when they say you didn't know anything till you were 20 years sober that's crazy i know i know but i think that you do start to um you know the self-awareness that you gain through that is immense and five years really isn't a long time yeah it is and it isn't i mean it it is a long time and i'm proud of it and i don't mean to be diminishing of that time at all because it's because by the way the person that quit drinking at 35 was like no way could i go five years of course i mean five five days is insane insane. back then so five years is crazy but i do i do have this awareness that i'm still getting to know myself yeah like like when you ask me that question about depression for a long time i've been saying i'm not a depressed person because once i quit drinking i really didn't struggle with it but lately i have been struggling Mm -hmm. with it and so i'm starting to think that was maybe a too easy of an answer to say, oh, I'm not depressed. The alcohol made me depressed. Right. I'm starting to think maybe I, I am. And I just have certain, you know, triggers that I'm dealing with right now. And, you know, and, and so, yeah, I'm just getting to know myself. Yeah. I mean, I know when I first got sober, my first year was so magical and wonderful. I was like, no more therapy, no more medication. Who needs it? My problem was I was an alcoholic and now it's all. You were one of those pink cloud people for a year. Imagine having a pink cloud every day for a year. Oh man. I I wanted it so bad. I was, I'm so, so miserable, but yeah. Yeah. It's weird. I don't know how people stay sober without that. I don't know. I don't know how I did. I really don't. It sucked so bad. And people have asked me a lot. I think that's really the magic question because it's not why did you quit because I'd quit a hundred times there's so many reasons to quit yeah it's how do you stay quit yeah how do you stay when it's not when you're unhappy yeah how when you're not getting your rewards yeah I mean and for me I've had many unhappy not many I've had certainly unhappy periods of my sobriety but I have all that this too shall pass I get it because I had that initial it was so joyful you know, so yep. how did you? I mean, this is a good note to end on. Yeah, I mean, I, I that's also still a mystery to me, but I know that at about the three month mark, you know, it was in my sobriety, it started to become clear to me how much I had worried people around me, mm-hmm. and I had really. A lot of my drinking was enabled by this idea that I wasn't hurting other people. You know, I would hear people say, oh, well, I'm hurting my husband or my yeah. kids. And I was like, not me. I yeah. don't have those things. <laughs> yeah. No problem over here. And I kept my job, right? Um, but as I was getting more s- sober, it was becoming clear to me that my friends had really worried mm-hmm. and that my mother and my father had really worried and they had swallowed a lot of fear and they were in pain. They didn't know how to do, they didn't know what to do or what to say. And about three months in, my f- brother got um, called up to Iraq. He was in uh, the reserves. And so I saw my mother go through more fear than I ever had. Mm-hmm. Like she was really, really worried about him, even though he was going to a very safe and remote part of Iraq or as safe as those parts could be. But she was so worried. And I remember thinking I couldn't put both her kids in danger. Mm-hmm. And I remember being really angry that I couldn't relapse. 
I was like, God, she took away my relapse. And I was so mad because I had about three months, which is right around the time that I normally relapsed. Mm -hmm. And I was like, all right, fine. Shit. I'm just going to keep going. Mm -hmm. And so then at about six months was when I got the idea of writing in the book. And then I think probably the book kept me sober. The idea of the she book. She spent for three and a half years writing it. Four. Yeah, I spent I spent um, three years. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, honestly, just trying to figure shows. out what trying to figure out what to say. Um, I wrote different versions of the book that never happened. Like I didn't know if I was going to write a memoir or a nonfiction book or a reported book. Or there were all sorts of things that went into it. I mean, the actual writing of it probably took a year, and then a lot of time editing. I mean, you know, but it was a very slow going process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it always is, I think. Well, I wanted it to be instant because I like everything instant. I wanted to write it in four, you know, three or four months and then then sell it for a bunch of money and be done. Yeah. And then have it come out like immediately. Immediately. And then like what's what's take so long, you know. But I do know that having this promise that I could do something in my sober life that I hadn't done in my drinking life, which is what I wanted to do more than anything else on the earth, Mm -hmm. really. More than have kids, more than get married, more. I wanted to write a book. That was my mm-hmm. brass ring. And if I could do that in my sober life, then that would mean I had a, a, accomplished something that I, you know, that I had proven to myself that I was better sober. That's so interesting. And then things got better. You got out. And of then the what part. happened is that things got better. Yeah. I moved out of New York, which I really needed to do. Are you going to stay in Texas? I don't know. I don't know. Could LA woo you? It's possible, mm-hmm. but I will say that, that Texas was exactly where I needed to mm-hmm. be for that four years and to go back to Dallas, which is the place that I had grown up hating so much mm-hmm. and to return home and to feel like it was totally right for me mm-hmm. and to love it and to feel like, oh, thank God I'm back. Like to be in the soil where I was planted. It was a very profound feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be close to my family and to just have everything like I had spent so much of my life trying to be an impressive person and trying to impress everyone around me with like, I live in New York. Mm-hmm. I live in a cool neighborhood in mm-hmm. Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. I live in on this street, you know, and just like getting all those those little coins from the universe for being like an impressive person mm-hmm. to let go of that and to be like, I live in Dallas, Texas, and I live really close to my parents and I'm close to my parents and I like them very much. Mm-hmm. And like, and like it was all nothing the things, cool about that. there was nothing cool about it. Yeah. And it was exactly what I needed right. to be doing. And I knew it. And so that was so good for me. Yeah. And, and like you say, it started to get better. I started to get better. I started to get happier and I became more of the person I wanted to be. And so that was the crazy thing. When I actually became mm-hmm. the person that I was drinking to be, that's when I realized, oh, I don't need alcohol for this. So well said. That's so, so, so true. Um, I love it to the point that I'm going to have to stop it right now so we don't eat. Okay, so I won't screw it up. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Have you already ordered Blackout? Your second copy, your third copy? Uh, Go get it. Go go read up on her uh, and go keep listening to this podcast. This was After Party Pod. Uh, with Sarah Heppola as the guest. <laughs>